bienvenidos a Water Talk. In today's episode, we are excited to have the opportunity to talk with Laurel Firestone. Laurel is a board member of the California State Water Resources Control Board, appointed in 2019 by Governor Gavin Newsom, and then reappointed in 2023. Previously, she co-founded and co-directed the Community Water Center, a nonprofit environmental justice organization focused on access to safe, clean, and affordable drinking water in the Central Valley and the Central Coast of California. In 2018, Laurel and Susana de Anda received the James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award. Laurel graduated uh, with honors from Harvard Law School and from Environmental Studies from Brown University. And we are really looking forward to talk to her. She has been uh, on my radar for uh, quite a lot of time. Um, an advocate, an organizer that has always worked with the people, that has been always her boots on the ground, that has been talking with all these different the people that have been suffer for the lack of safe, affordable, clean water in the in the Central Valley, and someone that went actually cross uh, cross lines, went from this advocate part now into the government, uh, helping from within, and I don't know someone that I'm I'm really looking forward to to talk. Hey, Malika, what about you? Yeah, I'm super excited to speak with Laurel today, and. I think just, you know, getting to know the work that Laurel has been doing and, and understand her story a little bit more, I don't know, it, it makes me kind of think back to when we talked to Joaquin, who's, you know, in a similar role with the State Water Resources Control Board. And I just like to hear a lot about the connections that drew people to water and then, you know, the work that they did on the ground, right? So it's just interesting when somebody goes from doing this really targeted work with, in this case, the Community Water Center, and then kind of zooming out, you know, and then it's almost like seeing the whole thing, right? So going to this state level, and then thinking about just a myriad of issues, you know, for the whole state, like droughts, flooding, the human right to water, just all of it. I think from what I've heard, Laurel is one of the most visionary people that we have working on water today in our state. And I'm really curious to just hear, hear some of her ideas and hear what she has to say. And in addition, so the parallels with Joaquin Esquivel in terms of being in, in a similar position that the two of them work together. Also with um, Felicia Marcus, who was also in that role and that we knew or we heard from Felicia from the the previous drought, the 2012-2016 drought, and how she was working on that position as, as a water board member. And and now with Laurel Firestone, perhaps the other part of the drought, the last drought, 2019-2022 uh, drought that, that we experienced. So anyway, for me, there, there are also a lot of parallels. Yes, Laurel Firestone, a very... A smart, very brilliant a water person in our state that we should be very, we're very lucky. We should be very proud to have her. And without any further ado, let's, let's actually have a conversation with Lauren. Hey, we're really looking forward to talk with you, Laurel. Bienvenida. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you all. 
Welcome, Laurel. We noticed that since very early on in your career, you have always been an advocate for water. Can you share with us just your path towards water in California and just what made you really interested in water and also environmental justice? Yeah. So when I first started in California, I had just graduated from law school and I was looking to work in areas where there was really a need for attorneys and folks that had really been under-resourced. And so I was attracted to the San Joaquin Valley. I moved down there right after law school and met Susanna Deanda, who is uh, now the executive director of Community Water Center, but co-founded it with me. And we started working around with communities that didn't have access to safe drinking water. It was something that families were concerned about. They had seen water coming out brown, smelling like sewage, both in their home and in their kids' school, and really weren't getting answers about what was going on. And it was mothers basically pulling together other parents in their living room to try to figure out what to do and how to get answers and safe water for their kids. And it was it was clear to Susanna and I at the time that this was much more widespread than one community. Um, we heard from community after community in the area that this was an issue that, you know, lack of access to safe drinking water in their home, uh, sometimes lack of water altogether was a, really a chronic issue in many of these communities and something that wasn't able to necessarily be changed immediately. It was something people had tried to work on, but the types of projects that were needed really took decades to do. And so one of the things Susanna and I felt strongly about was that if we were going to support communities, we really needed to have a center that could be more than just a campaign or a short-term support, but be a kind of long-term partner. I think one of the really more formative stories for me was in that community, it was Ducor, whose water was coming out brown, as one of the first communities we worked with. It was really a lesson to me in how much water issues are really just about our human institutions, our society. It's really a reflection of the same power dynamics and systems that we have across all sorts of issues. It's often really magnified and can be very concrete in water. So for example, in Ducor, the local groundwater had been contaminated with nitrate after decades of, you know, intensive agriculture, fertilizer. And so they had drilled a deeper well to avoid the nitrate. And there they hit manganese and hydrogen sulfide, which was causing the color and smell of the water. And that was part of the issue, but really that could have been addressed if the system had been maintained and flushed and chlorinated properly. So the most immediate issue was really that human system of who's responsible for maintaining the system, who's responsible for ensuring that the system is maintained, that people are getting information, that the folks that are served water are getting information and then able to hold accountable and get the service that they need. And so it was really a lesson in 
even these most these really tangible brown smelly water isn't just an issue of technology it's it's at least as much a tech uh, issue of kind of structure governance institution and these sort of human systems so you were seeing the need for a permanent group that actually will deal with this actually from the community from the community point of view and and actually uh, being boots on the ground. I know that you also were involved in key issues uh, related with water and East Border Bill, that that was all over the news in uh, the second to last drought. So could you talk with us about East Border Bill and how that evolved? Yeah, so East Porterville is is like many communities in that there was never adequate investment in that community to get a centralized water system at all. We have folks on private domestic wells and and really a lot of infrastructure in the community. There was never real investment. In fact, the the uh, Tulare County General Plan, kind of local land use planning document had designated 15 communities in the county that were that were specifically targeted to not receive investment in um, public infrastructure because they were considered non-viable. All of those happened to be low-income communities, communities of color, and unincorporated areas. And those are the same communities that we see today don't have adequate drinking water and wastewater services as well as things like stormwater. And it's really tragic, but not surprising in many ways that in the floods and these storms this year, that those same communities that haven't had safe drinking water and reliable water access are also the ones that are being flooded and have been hardest hit with these storms. So we saw actually saw that in East Porterville, see that with Allensworth and Alpa. But East Porterville in particular in the last drought was really an example of communities on the front lines of climate change. They're the most vulnerable. Domestic wells are often more shallow. In the drought, they're often the first to go dry. And we saw widespread through the community households, wells going dry. We had folks from the community organizing to get water temporarily. Eventually there was tanks that were provided to homes, but folks were having to take showers in the church parking lot. There wasn't enough uh, water for things like fire protection. So one house burned down. It, it was it lasted a really long time. Once wells go dry, they don't just come back with a rain or even this year. They're often gone. And when you have a whole community on private wells, looking at how to build back what the state and and locals really are seeing is that we can't just rely on single wells in this new hydrology and climate. We need to invest in, in um, the infrastructure that should have been there to begin with, centralized water system where it can connect to the city that it's really a part of. I mean, you know, it, it may be um, in a different boundary, but you know, if you were driving through, there's no separation physically. Um, but yet, because of that institutional difference between what's in the city and what's out, you can see the infrastructure and that basic access to services. There's really extreme disparities. So that was really one of the drivers 
for, you know, community residents organized both getting relief and that long-term solution in. The state funded um, and completed a project to do a centralized water system, connect it to the city, but also try to get ultimately community advocacy led to a lot of the momentum to pass the sustainable the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, SIGMA, because what we saw was that's really the tip of the iceberg. We saw thousands of wells going dry and, and even public water systems having to lower their wells. And so it, it was really, I think, a wake-up call that we needed to get our groundwater under control. And it was community residents who were dealing with the stress of not having water in their home that were also driving, taking off time work, driving or getting rides up to Sacramento just to testify to be able to pass a more systemic law that could help, you know, not prevent um, what happened to their community and other communities in the Valley. That's such meaningful work. And it kind of leads into the next thing we wanted to talk with you about, which is related to the human right to water in California. And we know that you played an important role and, of course, also the, the CWC to organize and fight for the passage of the Human Right to Water, AB 685, which is the right to safe, clean, affordable, and accessible water. And we were wondering if you can share with us some of your advocacy work for passing the Human Right to Water, but then also like what your vision is. How do you see, you know, what are the next steps? What do we need to do beyond the passage of the bill? Yeah. Well, you know, for us, we had been working, Susanna and I had been working with communities since 2005, like Ducor, which I talked about, that had been told that it was fine to have brown water. That's just the way it was around here. Um, you know, it's fine for coffee, stop complaining. And so I think one of the important roles of passing the human right to water was community members, not just in Ducor, but in the hundreds of communities in California and in communities in urban places like Maywood in LA who had groundwater coming out and also were told that they should stop complaining. It was just how it was here. Um, for community members to say, no, we have a right to access to safe drinking water, just like everyone else in California. And that is an expectation that we have a right to expect. It also really drastically, I think, changed the awareness in Sacramento that there are communities without safe drinking water. There's always a focus on say, on the 95% of Californians that do have access to safe and and reliable drinking water when they turn on their tap and the 5% that don't or that are on the brink of not in other cases have really been glossed over and ignored. And so this was really a fundamental shift. And so one of the opportunities that I've had now as a member of the state water board is to look at all the ways that even just our agency is just one state agency, how many decisions go into what's needed to actually achieve the human right to water in California. So for example, we're charged with regulating the Safe Drinking, Safe Drinking Water Act, the regulatory standards that every system has to meet 
in a community in California, no matter where you live, if you have water coming out of your tap that's that's provided by a, a community water system, you all have to meet the same standards. And so one of the things is both setting those standards, how we set those standards, and how we enforce and implement that. We're also charged with regulating sources of pollution to protect and restore the water that we use for our drinking water sources around water quality. That, you know, we've, we saw for decades that nitrate was really not adequately regulated to protect water quality, as one example. All of the work that we do around regulating dischargers really is often part of the source water protection. There's also, we also have a role in and are charged with protecting reasonable use and efficient use of water supplies so that communities can access water for basic health and human safety needs and administering our water rate system, which impacts the amount and cost of water that water systems pay for access to water from from rivers and reservoir even before it's treated. So that's been particularly important in the drought. And we're charged with administering billions of dollars of grants and loans to invest in infrastructure for local and regional drinking water and clean water projects. And that really makes a difference often between, you know, communities being able to have infrastructure or not. Those are just some of the core functions we have. And each of those is critical to achieving the human right to water. But certainly that's just one agency. And we see many agencies across the state, certainly at the state level with Department of Water Resources, but also, you know, increasingly, I think more of the regional and local agencies have have really embraced this framework. And at the end of the day, what really matters is is what's going on on the ground. And that's really the implementation is really at the local agencies. We at the state are really partners and we set regulatory standards and enforce things. But in terms of the provision day to day, that's really at the local level. And so I think that that goes to the importance of just community and and local agency and allies working hand in hand to try to make this a reality. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Laurel. And you really touch a lot of the important work that all of you do there. Yeah, the safe and affordable funding for equity and resilience, safer and a lot of that fund that is managed. And as you are talking, I see more hope, which what occurred in 2012, which it was the recognition to now actually putting a lot of action, right? And also having people engage agencies, local agencies embracing this. Switching a little bit here, uh, uh, gears. So in the 2012, 2016 drought, you were actually working in the community water center and pushing for a lot of changes. One of those was Sigma. And then later in the uh, 2020, 2021 uh, last drought, now you were on the other uh, side of the of the desk on, on the government. And tell us uh, how, I mean, what what the water boards, what you did in, in terms of this last drought and, and I don't know, perhaps not only the drought, now the, the floods that we have. Yeah, well, I, I, one, I think critical thing was that in terms of the many 
steps that have needed to happen since passage of the Human Right to Water Act. One of the most fundamental, as you mentioned, is passage of the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Act and creation of the SAFER program at the Water Board. And that, I do think, has really been a game changer for us in terms of what we've been able to do at the state. It provides $130 million annually, which is flexible in addition to whatever infrastructure dollars there are from either federal or state bonds or revolving funds. And so what that's done is allowed us to kind of fill the gaps and leverage that infrastructure dollars that's there. And it also means that we're more flexible to able to respond to emergencies in ways that we didn't have that kind of funding before. Um, So we have been We've, we've been spending millions and millions of dollars on uh, drought relief, both in terms of domestic well communities and getting hauled water, getting our systems down and, and folks on the ground so that immediately there's, um, there's responders that can get those, uh, those tanks in place. But also, um, it, in some ways, more importantly, um, is supporting communities that are Um, serving a whole community that may have seen a well go dry or infrastructure um, break down. This happened a lot, unfortunately, in this last drought. And our resources and folks on the ground were able to respond in ways that they haven't been able to in the past because of those those, uh, funding resources and the flexibility in that. There's also since the last since the 2013 to 15 phase of the drought <laughs> there was there was a lot of learning around that that small rural communities don't have the same kind of water supply contingency plans and drought planning ahead of time to both prevent and and respond quickly to water shortages And so that's something that's continuing, but I think it has improved since the last drought. There is a a lot more planning, monitoring going on. We have a whole drought watch list that we have where we're working with communities to make sure that that they're monitoring their well levels on a daily, weekly basis so they can see before it starts getting too low you know, what's going on, whether they're at risk. So we can prevent emergencies rather than wait till something, water's gone entirely to be able to respond. And then, you know, we have, I think another big issue for us is looking at at groundwater levels and just that continued decline, unfortunately, especially with drought, folks just, despite passage of Sigma, there's, you know, there's a, a a period of 20 years that folks are doing planning and projects to try to get things under um, it at a sustainable level. But in the meantime, there's been a drought and folks have been really uh, trying to access water however they could. We've seen thousands of more wells go dry, even since the passage of Sigma. And so looking at more long term, how are we supporting uh, local agencies to be able to to achieve that sustainable groundwater management is increasingly a, a major focus, and and especially with recent developments because it's, it's kind of shifting to our 
our venue now. I think it was on April's a board meeting when uh, DWR and you got together for analyzing uh, the different DSPs that were submitted and uh, DWR mentioning what, what were approved, what were not approved. I I have to confess, I was actually watching the the meeting from my computer and, you know, it was for me uh, eye-opening, as you're mentioning. I, I need to highlight this. There were still thousands of wells going dry after the passage of Sigma. It is just impressive. And if we talked about land subsidence, that's another one and many, many things. So... I don't know now. Now that um, I mean, it really is coming to DWR bringing to the water boards to the front. What were those regions that were deemed that their GSP was not deemed adequate? I don't know. Do you want to share with us your perspective on this part of of the Sigma saga or the Sigma process that that we are having here in California? I mean, the challenge with Sigma is that I think from the beginning, the I, it, there was a recognition that there's a lot of areas in California, primarily in the San Joaquin Valley, that are in such critical overdraft that um, it's going to take, it, it, turning that around isn't going to be overnight. And so there was this recognition that um There needs to be a plan that's developed collectively, locally, to figure out how we can achieve that sustainability. It is really challenging to do in these areas when there's such, such extreme overdraft and there's not a lot of water sources to to do recharge. We're so lucky right now, but really, you know, we know that there's more and more dryers coming and then these periods of extreme precipitation on the other side and figuring out how to achieve sustainability and, and, and really change how we're managing groundwater in when water levels are dropping, we're seeing towns subside and wells go dry. It's just incredibly challenging. So I, I think the state and the state is really looking at how can we try to set folks up for success? The, the way that it's set up is Department of Water Resources has been working with plans to try to help them get a plan set up that can be approved. There's six that have been uh, so far that have been deemed inadequate. And so what that means is that then it gets kicked to us to be that kind of backstop to say, okay, well, if you can't get the plans that you need and the actions that you need in place, the state needs to come in and at least make sure that we're, that we have a plan to get us there. And, you know, I don't, that's not meant to take the place of locals. That's really meant to be a backstop as locals are continuing to implement and develop a plan that can be more locally driven, but we can't in the meantime, let, you know, let water levels and communities, households, critical infrastructure continue to be impacted. So Laurel, I have a quick follow-up. That's so interesting that, so it's kind of like the state is coming in and I I don't know, maybe mentoring the communities that need, need assistance with their plans. And I'm curious what that looks like. Like, and you know, as that's happening, is it like, okay, well, 
let's look at, you know, the supply end of what we think we're going to generate in this plan. Let's maybe revise this particular part of it. Like how, how, what does that exactly look like? Yeah. Well, I, I think the locals would probably not characterize it as mentoring from our, like in what we do, because, um, you know, cause we are, we're, we're a regulatory agency and it's interesting the way that we, that we, that the state is split up. Department of Water Resources, I do think, has been trying to do that mentoring role. And so, you know, throughout has been meeting regularly with with agencies to help develop, you know, plans, give feedback. Once plans were submitted, did an evaluation and identified, okay, these are the things that are incomplete. We're going to give you a chance to fix these met a lot to explain, provided some guidance, but there were still six that weren't able to meet that. Now, just to be clear, the majority of areas, even in that critical overdraft areas throughout the state, because there's many beyond the San Joaquin Valley, were able to get plans that were deemed adequate. But I think the level and pace of subsidence and frankly, number of domestic wells that would be impacted in a lot of the areas of the, in the San Joaquin Valley is just really severe. So I, I have to say, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the folks on the ground that have been trying to develop these plans. And one of the things we've been trying to do is really work on, from the water rights perspective, what is realistic to build in and, and how might we support the potential to bring water in for recharge to recover in these periods. But there's really limited ability to do that. I think, you know, the governor has, you know, laid out in his water supply strategy that we're going to see actually a loss of about 10% of water supply. And then we have these whiplash between extremes. So I, while everyone would love to say, we can just import more water. I think the opposite is true. And so what that means is we need to cut back on our water use really significantly. And that's going to mean, unfortunately, not being able to do the same kind of land uses that we've been able to do when there, when we haven't had those restrictions. And so it's really hard for locals to say, you can't pump what you know water from your well at the pace that you're used to. So sometimes it's necessary for the state to come in and say, all right, you guys need to start reporting how much you're pumping from your wells. And this is going to be the the limits that are needed to achieve that sustainability. So that's kind of our role at the state water board is now that plans where they're not able to do that themselves for us to, to do that piece. And at the same time, Department of Water Resources and, and our staff on the water rights side and water quality side is trying to work with plans to get, you know, projects in place. One of the things we've been really trying to figure out is, is mitigation programs for domestic wells. But at the end of the day, this is going to come down to really hard cuts, and there's going to be really extreme impacts in the San Joaquin Valley. And the idea is let's figure out how to manage that, to optimize that as much as we can, avoid having that fall as it generally does on low-income communities, communities of color, these unincorporated areas, so that you know, we can have healthy communities in the valley and um, 
and and sort of chart a a course that's more more equitable and and optimized for the region. So Laurel, with all of the challenges that we have in California, what do you think are some of our greatest potentials or greatest opportunities to make positive impacts on water? And are there any kind of missing gaps or or anything that you're thinking would be interesting to pursue in policy or in science that we, we should be thinking about and aware of? You know, I think you can't work in water and especially work on any kind of environmental justice issues if you don't, ha- if you're not optimistic in some way, just as a, as a person. Um, really what gives me optimism is when I see folks from communities coming together to try to advocate or develop projects in their communities and for, you know, the broader communities that are are like theirs throughout the state. Some of the specific areas, you know, I do feel real genuine optimism about our safer program and being able to address those communities that have not had access to safe water for decades or more. You know, it's never happening fast enough. And there's a lot of pieces, you know, we're working on in terms of improving our funding processes, but there's also more resources than there's ever been. There's, I think, a real political will to focus and prioritize those communities that have been disinvested in and left out or or have been excluded and make sure that that's where we're prioritizing, utilizing our authorities, utilizing our resources. We've seen hundreds of communities now receiving assistance that they hadn't before. I think there's 40% of Californians that didn't have access to safe drinking water in 2019 now have access to it today in 2023. And I see a lot more coming because a lot of what we've had to do with this program is invest in things like the planning and project, project development and community development of projects so that our funding can be used for the right types of projects, for connecting communities together and being able to accelerate that. But that planning, I think, has been a big focus of the first few years. So I'm hoping to see us get these projects over the finish line soon. I also feel like there's just a lot more recognition of water equity and inequity in this state. The state water board passed a racial equity resolution, both recognizing how our agency and our water systems in general are have contributed and continue to contribute to disparities in access. And that is something that we're that we've created a really deliberate action plan that we're bringing into all of our programs. And so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. One of the core pieces of that is, is and needs to be engagement with communities throughout these decision early and then throughout the decision-making processes that affect them. And so I think lastly, and, and, and kind of to, you know, in terms of what can be done going forward as listeners are thinking about that, you know, being participation either uh, within processes through public comment, through partnerships in in projects and decision making, 
is critical on the really local level. That's the only way things get done. And you can have whatever law and policy you want. But if you don't have people on the ground, you know, making it happen, it's not going to. So that's true, whether it's conservation projects, whether it's drinking water infrastructure, whether it's restoration, it really takes folks on the ground making that happen. You know, I think if if anything, the, that's, I think, one of the most important areas of contribution. And then also just increasing representation and, and service on decision-making bodies and within staff of, you know, within the water sector. I think we're starting to see you know, a continuing focus on the need to have better representation of demographics within the water sector. We have a long way to go. And then definitely on decision-making bodies themselves. Those aren't necessarily easy positions, I can say from, from experience. But I think, you know, the more that folks are willing to step into those roles, the more that we're able to, I think, achieve what we're trying to achieve in the state. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Laurel. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that I, I always try to keep my optimism when working in water. And I think that's that's part of the, the altitude and get projects on the ground, always thinking in water um, equity or inequities and how we can reduce it. Yeah, increasing representation and, and get our voice uh, heard. I have to mention that we met, I think, like uh, a month or two months ago in person when we were in a event from the Community Water Center. And we got our dosage of uh, optimism and recharging our battery, seeing all those people from the communities telling our story and and seeing that if, if they can do it, we can do it. So in addition to that, we always, uh, we always finish our uh, podcast asking if there is anything else that you want to share with us or, uh, and most importantly, how can we support your work? How can we support the, the good work that you're doing? I think we all have a role to play. Water is really concrete in people's lives. It's something we put in our bodies. It's something we we rely on throughout pretty much everything we do. And it also is such a reflection of our society and the systems and sort of human dynamics that we have amongst each other. And so, you know, no matter what you work in, I think you have a role to play within water decision-making and within resource, within the resources you give and uh, with your time and with the resources that, that you can bring. So an, an expertise I am really optimistic that I think there's a, a growing awareness of the the inequities that exist and continue to be perpetuated and the ways that we can begin to to address them. And I also just have been seeing, I think, a growing momentum to to have folks from communities represented within decision-making structures. And I think in some ways that's what gives me the most optimism. Gracias, gracias. Muchas gracias. Thanks a lot. Uh, what is what it is a shared resource? So let's protect it together. El agua es de todos. Hay que protegerla juntos. Thank you for listening to the Water Talk podcast. My name is Samuel Sandoval. I'm a professor and cooperative extension specialist at UC Davis. I'm Faith Kearns with the California Institute for Water Resources in the UC Division of Ag and Natural Resources. 
am Malika Noko, an assistant professor of soil plant water relations and irrigation management at the University of California, Davis. If you enjoy our show, please review, listen, like, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Find transcripts and additional content at watertalkpodcast.com. Original music by Paloma Herrera-Thomas.